You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we have gathered here to worship you. Uh, we want to bring you glory and honor. We want to praise you today. And Lord, nothing glorifies you like the gospel. And so today we're going to look squarely at the gospel. And I pray, Lord, that we would not move to the left or to the right, that we would understand your word rightly, that we might glorify you rightly. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're going to do Luke chapter 23 today. Start with verse 32. As you, as you turn there, you can see we're going to be examining the account of the penitent thief, or the thief on the cross. And it's a passage that may seem a little bit mysterious, or a little bit incomplete. We'll see from the passage today all the necessary and sufficient conditions for the salvation of the human soul. Uh, this passage uniquely shows that so many heretical systems, virtually every heretical system, is false. It demonstrates it by the conversion of the thief on the cross, and we'll see that today. Virtually every heretical system offers up some sort of works to accompany grace, and this thief is being nailed to a cross, uh, uniquely in all of history, unable to offer any good work to his salvation, and so we'll see that. So let's turn to Luke 23, we'll read verses 32 through 43. Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sense of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Beautiful passage. Uh, familiar but somewhat mysterious. We'll be focused today on the response of the robbers. Uh, Seth's seen a little bit. This is obviously the crucifixion of our Lord. And we see that he was crucified between two men. What do we know about these men? Uh, here in the Gospel of Luke, Luke refers to them with a Greek word that means, it's only used in this passage, and it means one who does evil, a bad actor. Uh, King James translates it as a, as a malefactor, and the more modern translations as a criminal. Matthew and Mark tell, tell us that these are thieves, hence the thief on the cross, or robbers. But they use a term that doesn't mean somebody who's a sneak thief, like a pickpocket, or somebody that would sneak in and steal. These are robbers, violent men, steal by force. Right? Remember, the crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. So these aren't petty thieves. These are violent, evil, brutal robbers, okay? the worst of the worst. What's interesting, we know from the account in Matthew, the, the last verse we read in the scripture reading in Matthew, 
that both of these two men were insulting, reviling, and blaspheming the Lord. Both of them. And we think of this as the good thief and the bad thief. There's no good thief. There's no good anyone, right? So they were both reviling Jesus on the cross. Both of them. What were they saying? Uh, look down to verses 35 through 39. and see what they were saying. The people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So they're joining in this mocking. We see what the mocking is from the other accounts and from this account. They're mocking his ability to save. They're mocking his identity as king and as Messiah. They are mocking his claim to be the Son of God. We saw that in Matthew. They're mocking his trust in the Father, which must have hurt especially, as he was trusting in the Father there on the cross. It's, it's a horrible scene, and we, don't, we can't diminish that. MacArthur refers to this as the comedy of the crucifixion. It's horrible comedy to these people. It's hilarious fun to destroy this man. He stood in judgment over their sin. He, he called them out for their hypocrisy. And now he was going to pay. And the irony of this is obvious, right? We know it. He was in fact saving his people. That's what he was doing by not coming down from the cross. But they wouldn't see that. They couldn't see that. So they literally added insult to injury by mocking him. And so that's the scene. Now what's remarkable, I want to focus on this, the two men on either side of him, crucified men, joined in the fun. They were nailed to crosses and they joined in the mocking. Uh, Matthew 27, 44, the, the last verse in the scripture reading we had this morning, the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. In the same way. There they were. Three men on three crosses. The innocent son of God in the middle and two robbers, two evil, brutal men, mocking him from either side. That's the scene. Now, if that's not remarkable, does that not speak to the obstinacy of sin, to the depravity of men? They were crucified. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of crucifixion. That's been done a lot, and I think we've, we've heard that. We know how horrible that was. Usually it's in the context of what was happening to Christ, but the same thing was happening to the two men on either side. Physically. So it's not easy to get a breath to speak on the cross. You have to pull up off of the nail to get a breath. And so they did, so that they could mock Jesus Christ. That's how they spent their last breath on this earth. That's, that was their plan. This is a good idea. I'm dying on a cross. I think I'll mock this innocent man. Okay? Now, we don't know what they thought of Christ. As far as we know, they hadn't met him before. They probably heard of him. Uh, he hadn't done anything to them. We know that. And yet, they thought it was a good idea to join in the fun. Okay? That's a picture of all of us. That, I know that's who I was apart from Christ. A mocker. A horrible, vile sinner. And what was Jesus' response to all this? Look at verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Always focused on the mission, even in the midst of this suffering. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the Word. And so he did, even to the end. That's what he was doing. 
He sought the forgiveness of even those who were mocking him as he hung on a cross. There's a lot more that I should say about that, that I wish I had time to say about that. I've got to be focused on the thieves and their response. So I want to make sure you understand, they heard that. They saw all this. They participated in it. And they heard what Jesus had to say. These are the things that they're seeing and hearing as they hang there. Now, sometime in the midst of all this, one of the two puts their faith in the man in the middle. One of them gets saved. Look at verses uh, 42 and 43. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we clearly see the conversion of one of these two men. Now it's kind of awkward to refer to the one thief and the other thief, uh, but that's all we know about. We don't have any names. There are, in tradition, the, the penitent thief is, is known as Dismas. You can go online and you can buy a little pendant to St. Dismas if you want. There's churches to St. Dismas, the penitent thief. Uh, the other one is known as Gestus in that tradition, the impenitent thief. You can't buy a pendant to Gestus as far as I know. Uh, in truth, we don't know what their names are. We don't know anything about them other than these accounts. Uh, the, the next thing we know about them beyond this account, and the only other thing beyond this, is in the Gospel of John, and Jim will get to that in five or six years, about that when the, when the guards came, they broke the legs of these two men. They hastened their death, and they didn't Jesus because he had already died. That's all we know about them. Okay? This, this account. All right. So what can we tell from them about this passage? If this is what we know about them, what can we tell about them? First of all, the impenitent or unrepentant thief. Not mentioned again beyond this passage. We know he died within hours of this account, obviously. So is there any account of his spiritual condition? Yeah, I think so. And dying on a cross, he decided that the best thing to do was to mock Christ. And so, he died in his sin. Uh, some people say, well, no, he, he made a request for salvation. He says, aren't you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Well, he, what was he asking for? Was he asking for the salvation of his eternal soul, you think? Well, the other, Robert didn't think so. He rebuked him for it. He was just joining in the fun. The save yourself thing was something they'd been throwing at him all, all day. Right? Just mocking the fact that he couldn't. They thought was the fact that he couldn't. He wasn't asking for anything. He was just joining in the fun. One more big, funny joke. Right? It shows the depravity of human soul. Uh, this is from Calvin. He puts it this way. An example of furious obstinacy is held out to us in this wretched man. Since even in the midst of his torments, he does not cease fiercely to foam out his blasphemy. Thus desperate men are wont to take obstinate revenge for the torments which they cannot avoid. And although he upbraids Christ with not being able to save either himself or others, yet this objection is directed against God himself, just as wicked men, when they do not obtain what they wish, would willingly tear God from heaven. They ought indeed to be tamed to humility by strokes, but this shows that the wicked heart, which no punishments can bend, is hard like iron, impossible to be saved apart from God. But then there's the other thief. You can call him Dismas if you want. I, I don't, you can call him whatever you want. We don't know his name. He has a very clear change of attitude. And I want to see. I want to go through his confession and see, uh, see what we can see about him. Because I, I, I think in his account you see a perfectly clear vision, perfectly clear account of repentance and faith. So let's start with the reaction to the mocking in verse 40. It says, but the other rebuked him. 
But the other rebuked him. The penitent thief rebuked the impenitent thief. He told him to stop the mocking. Offered him a rebuke. Wait a minute. Imagine if you're the impenitent thief and you and the guy we now call the penitent thief have been mocking all day long for hours. And suddenly he says, hey, stop it. What gives? What happened? What changed? We know what changed, right? You know what changed? He was made alive. He was regenerated. He was quickened. That's what happened. A new creature. It's obvious to us. He's been born again. All things have become new. That's pretty amazing. Think about that for a second. If you've ever been in severe physical pain, are you really having great intellectual, spiritual clarity in that moment? That's not usually how it works. Right? Uh, after my second back surgery, I had back spasms. And having back spasms is painful. Having back spasms at a surgical site is quite painful. It's the purest pain I've ever felt, pretty much. I never gave birth, so. Diane was there with me. We were trying to figure out what to do. I had no idea what to do. I just laid there and hoped to die. Right? Usually, severe pain does not bring this sort of clarity. But here, the Holy Spirit uses the point of crucifixion in this man's life to bring this sort of emotional, uh, mental, spiritual clarity to him. It's a miraculous work in the Spirit. We know that because of the confirmation of a spiritual condition when, when Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. This was authentic conversion. Right? So he rebuked him. I want, I want you to see the first necessary step in salvation. This is the penitent thief saying, I don't believe that stuff anymore. The stuff I was spouting out a little while ago, I don't believe it anymore. You know how I was mocking his claim that he's the son of God? I was mocking his claim that he could save others. I was mocking all that stuff. I don't believe that stuff I was saying anymore. I don't believe what you're saying anymore. The first thing you have to do is leave behind those satanic deceptions that stand opposed to the gospel. Those have to be left behind. You have to at least begin to question those things. And that's what he did. I don't believe the mocking anymore. I believe that what he said about himself is true. I have to believe that. So what are the deceptions today? How about this? Uh, Many years ago, there was a very small dot, and it blew up, and everything came... And then it became other things over years. And then life came from it somehow. We're not sure, but we know it did. And then complex structures came out of nowhere. And so we don't need God. So there you go. That's proof that we don't need God. The proof there is no God. Got to leave that behind. At least the part that there is no God. You got to leave that behind. Uh, the Bible's been changed so many times. They changed it. They kept out the books that didn't agree with them. you got to leave that behind. Uh, God would never send, a loving God would never send someone to hell. All of these, by now, very familiar to you deceptions, they have to be left behind. That's the first step. Okay? Uh, we talk about the role of apologetics. You can never convince anyone into the kingdom, but apologetics has its place in breaking down those fences. It won't, it won't save anybody, but it has its place to tear down those fences. Now, we don't know what happened with this thief, though. Look at it. What's, where's the apologetics here? Who's been talking to this thief? 
Who's been sharing with him these, these important scientific observations to convince him of the truth of Jesus' claim? We don't know what happened with the thief. I mean, there may have been conversations. We don't know. But here's what we know for sure. It's a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in the life of this thief. He went from blaspheming to now rebuking the blasphemy. He just can't stomach the insult anymore. You can think of that as the first necessary step. Now look at the next. He rebukes the robber and he explains his rationale. He says, Do you not fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation? Another necessary step in salvation, the fear of God. The first thief had no fear of God. This is now astounding to the penitent thief. How could you not fear God? Now let's think about that for a second. It's kind of astounding. The, the thief, the impenitent, unrepentant thief, he is, well, here's what we know about him. He's a thief. He's a robber. He's a violent man. And he's hanging on a cross for that crime. He knows he's a thief because he is a thief. He knows it by the, the laws of Moses. Presumably a Jew knows the laws of Moses. The law of God's written on our hearts. He knows that stealing is wrong and beating somebody up to take their stuff is wrong. He knows that. He knows he's guilty before God. He's broken the laws of God. He knows he's guilty. And he ought to fear God that he's broken the laws of God. But he doesn't. And the, uh, the, the uh, penitent thief says, you know you're guilty. Where's the fear of God? This is just unbelievable to the penitent thief. What's the difference between the two men? Psalm 36, 1, this is also quoted in Romans 3, so it'll be familiar to you. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's all of us apart from the regenerating work of Christ. We have no fear of God. The fear of God is a gift of God that is given at our regeneration, at our awakening. So that's biblical anthropology, right, in one verse. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Apart from Christ, there's no fear of God before any of our eyes. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and it's a necessary part of salvation. When we say we're saved, what are we saved from? Ever thought about that? Sure you have. We're saved. What are we saved from? I'm saved. We say, well, we're saved from sin. That's right. We're saved from sin. We're saved from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. We're saved from hell. We're saved from death. Yeah, all true. But it's most appropriate to say that we are saved from God. And don't miss that. We're saved from God. Okay? God was our enemy, and it was his wrath that was going to be poured out on us. When we're saved, when we put our faith in Christ, we're saved from God. And apart from Christ, we ought to fear him. We have to fear that judgment. Okay? So we see a rejection of false ideas, and we see a fear of God. Those are necessary conditions, but not yet sufficient. The man's not saved yet by those things. Look at verse 41. He says, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. We indeed justly. In other words, we're being punished fairly for our deeds. So what does that demonstrate? That's that awareness of sin. Okay? Understanding your sin and the judgment to come. He understands it. That's absolutely necessary for salvation. 
Jesus said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. A self-righteous person has no hope of salvation. If you do not acknowledge your sin and understand that you are a hopeless sinner in need of salvation, in need of a Savior, you have no hope of salvation. It's absolutely essential. And now the thief demonstrates that. He says, we indeed justly, we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Notice that he doesn't make any excuse for his sin. I, I grew up in a dysfunctional household. My parents were thieves. I don't have an education, so this is how I make a living. What else am I supposed to do? I'm no worse than the next guy. Look, I've done some good things, too. I've helped little old ladies across the street. I've helped big old ladies across the street. I've helped all kinds of old ladies across the street. Uh, one time when I stole a bunch of money, I gave some to the food bank. All right? I mean, all these weird justifications that sound weird when somebody else says them, but then, but when they boil up in our own brain, they sound perfectly reasonable. And he doesn't offer any of those. None of them. I'm guilty. He just admits his sin. We indeed justly. Rejected false notions about Christ. He's come to fear God rightly. And now he's expressed a right attitude towards his sin. He's confessed it. Acknowledged it. Acknowledged his guilt. So where does that leave him? Does it save him? No, repentance alone does not save. Repentance is necessary for salvation. It's used almost interchangeably with faith in the New Testament because it is so tightly wound in with faith. It's necessary. But the sin debt still remains. You can be, you can have that godly sorrow. You can even be, have all the aspects of repentance, turning in every aspect from sin toward God. But if the sin penalty is still there, you're still unsaved. You still have a penalty to be paid. So now what? Look at verse 41. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. Another necessary step in salvation. You have to rightly identify the Savior. And he just did. This man has done nothing wrong. This is, now hear this. This is what makes this passage a little bit confusing. This is a frank admission that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's the Son of God and God the Son. He's able to forgive sins. He is the Savior. It's an admission of all of that. And why do I say that? He has done nothing wrong. What is all the mocking? What's the punishment for? What's Jesus accused of? Blasphemy for saying that he was God, that he was the Son of God, that he was able to forgive sins, that he was able to do all the things that he said he would do and that he was who he said he was. And so this man is saying he's done nothing wrong. Everything he said is true. Everything I've heard you mock him for today, mocking is wrong. He is those things he claims to be. He got the Savior right, and that's necessary for salvation. This is, this is saying much more than he's just not guilty of the crime, that he doesn't deserve punishment for crime, as we would think of crime, because his crimes are blasphemy. That's what he's been accused of. So this has to be understood. There's only one Savior. There's only one Savior. And it's Jesus Christ, the Lord. That Jesus has presented here in his word. There's, there's no other Savior. Now, there's lots of uh, fake Saviors out there you can choose from. We've looked a lot of them in the high school class over the last, uh, I don't know, years. 
Baha'u'llah. Some of you guys remember Baha'u'llah? Or the Buddha? Or David Koresh or Jim Jones or all of these would-be saviors, right? Fake. All fake. Uh, there's only one Savior, this Jesus Christ the Lord. And it's important to note, it's this Jesus, the Jesus of your Bible, that is the Savior. Not a fake Jesus, okay? You can't have a Jesus that's the son of an alien God that is not God himself. That's a fake, that's a, a LDS Jesus, and that's a fake Jesus. That fake Jesus can't save you. You can't have a, a Jesus that is not fully God. You can't have a Jesus that is not man. That Jesus won't save you either. You have to have this Jesus, fully God, fully man, the Jesus Christ of the of the Bible. And the thief understood who the Savior was. He understood who hung next to him. This man has done nothing wrong. So the thief rejected false views of the gospel. He's begun to fear God. He's acknowledged the depth of his sin. He's seen the identity of the Savior. And now look at verse 42. This is the high point. If you don't remember anything else, okay, remember these words. Verse 42. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's the prayer of the penitent right there. Jesus, remember me. Please remember me. This is faith. This is the essence of faith. We say salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is that faith alone through which grace alone brings salvation. This is it. Total reliance on Jesus for salvation. He just, just remember me. That's all I ask. Some things to note about that. He says when you come into your kingdom, and there's a lot of ink spilled on this, for what we're, the point of our discussion, he understood that Jesus would have a kingdom. He understood that there was a kingdom to come and that Jesus would reign over it. It wasn't the end. He understood who this Jesus was and he knew that it wasn't the end. Jesus is hanging on a cross as sure to die as the thief in just a few hours. Absolutely sure to die. And yet the thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You're coming into your kingdom. Jesus, King, remember me. He knows that death can't hold Jesus. He's praying that ultimately it won't hold him either. That's what he's praying. Just remember me, he says. His, he's asking for his destiny to change. That's the prayer of the penitent. Just remember me. So we see all the necessary elements for salvation. Rejection of the gospel-denying notions, fear of God, acknowledgement of sin. Uh, those conditions are all implied by what we call repentance then identification of the Savior and simple faith in that Savior, absolute trust in the work of the Savior, and nothing else. And again, the thief can provide nothing else. There's no pretense with the thief. There's no self-righteousness. He can do nothing else. Uh, Calvin organizes thoughts a little differently, so better than I did. But I just want to read you how he kind of summarizes this. For it was not by the natural movement of the flesh that he laid aside his fierce cruelty and proud contempt of God so as to repent immediately, but he was subdued by the hand of God as the whole of Scripture shows that repentance is his work. And so much the more excellent is this grace that it came beyond the expectation of all. For who would ever have thought that a robber in the very article of death would become not only a devout worshiper of God, but a distinguished teacher of faith and piety to the whole world? 
so that we too must receive from his mouth the rule of a true and proper confession. Now the first proof which he gave of his repentance was that he severely reproved and restrained the wicked forwardness of his companion. He then added a second by humbling himself in open acknowledgement of his crimes and ascribing to Christ the praise due his righteousness. Thirdly, he displayed astonishing faith by committing himself and his salvation to the protection of Christ while he saw him hanging on the cross and near death. Good way to put it. This thief, he's known as a thief. He's a distinguished teacher of faith and piety to the whole world. So it boils down to repentance and faith, to repentant faith if you prefer. So was he truly saved? We see the response of Jesus. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. A clearly affirmative response. Really no question. But there have been questions raised, so I need to address those quickly, and I'll do that. Now, first of all, some words that I want you to see in here. Jesus says, truly. Truly is the amen. So when you hear that, that truly, or it's verily, verily, that's the word, uh, that's an emphasis word. And remember, Jesus is hanging on a cross, too. Has to choose his words extremely carefully. And yet he puts the truly in there as an emphasis. Doesn't want us to miss this. Next word, today. That word gets gets messed up all the time. Nobody argues that today means anything other than today. But look in your Bible, you will see a comma before the word today. In your almost every modern English translation does it that way. Some of them don't have a comma at all. But if they have a comma, it's right before today. Meaning, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the day you will be with me in paradise. That's the importance of the comma. If you put the comma behind the word today, it would be, truly I say to you today, you'll be with me in paradise. So I'm saying this today, that someday in the future you will be with me in paradise. And heretics prefer the latter interpretation. Because that gives you time for purgatory, uh, baptism for the dead, or whatever heretical addition you want to add, some sort of waiting room where people go and do something, okay? So this kingdom, and then they get to move to that kingdom, and all that kind of nonsense. All right? Well, a lot you could say about that. There's no punctuation in Greek, so that's where this whole thing comes out. Well, where should the comma be? Uh, it's ridiculous. And every English, every modern English translation puts the comma in the right place. Today refers to when the thief would be in paradise. There's one English translation that doesn't, that puts the comma uh, after the today. The New World Translation. Alright, so that tells you what kind of company you keep with that. Alright. So, today means today. Paradise, of course, the other word. If you're a heretic, paradise can't be heaven. If today is today, paradise can't be heaven. The thief doesn't do any good work. The thief wasn't baptized. So he can't be going to heaven. This paradise must mean something else. Well, the word paradise is a Persian word. It's used three times in the New Testament. It's used here. It's used when uh, Paul, in uh, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's talking about his vision of heaven, or maybe he actually went there. He wasn't sure, and neither am I. But he's talking about heaven, and he uses the term paradise as a synonym, very clear in that, in that passage. And the other is uh, in the book of Revelation, where John sees the tree of life in the paradise of God, and then we learn that the tree of life is in heaven. Paradise is either a synonym for heaven, or it's a garden place in heaven. It is heaven, nothing else. Okay? So this man went 
to heaven that day. So we see all the necessary elements of salvation, and we see genuine salvation. Uh, one thing I have to address up front, because the, uh, for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because of Duck Dynasty guys. Okay, I know people watch Duck Dynasty, and I'm not saying you shouldn't watch Duck, Duck Dynasty. I have no opinion on Duck Dynasty, but they're part of a tradition that uh, would say that baptism is necessary for salvation. And you can hear that if you listen to Phil Robertson. He preaches messages where he will say that. Uh, of course, also the Roman Catholic tradition holds that baptism is necessary for salvation. So in order to hold on to that heresy, it is heresy, one idea is that, well, this thief was baptized. He was baptized by John. Remember, John was baptized in all of them. They probably baptized him. No reason to believe that. If he was baptized by John for repentance, and listen to John tell him about the Savior to come, and when he pointed to Jesus, it didn't take, did it? All right? So, it makes no sense. We have no reason to believe that. Uh, Augustine, some of you say Augustine, uh, of course a great teacher. We have to be careful whenever we talk about him. He, it was, he lived in a time when theology was all messed up, let's put it that way. And he was trying to reconcile sometimes biblical theology with the teachings of the church at the time. So we kind of went back and forth on some things. I want to be critical of him. But he came up with this. The thief who then believed as he hung by the side of the crucified Lord, remember, he's trying to keep baptism as necessary for salvation, desperately. The thief who then believed as he hung by the side of the crucified Lord was sprinkled as in a most sacred baptism with the water which issued from the wound of the Savior's side. He was baptized by the blood and water that issued from the side of the Lord. Uh, it's just freakish. Right? It's just uh, trying to hold on to a heretical notion. And to be fair to him again, he moved back and forth on this subject. So, uh, But that is one idea that's still out there in Roman Catholicism. Okay? So what's missing? Baptism is missing. Any good works are missing. All of that stuff is missing. And the thief is just absolute evidence that none of that matters for salvation. Because he didn't have any of it, and he was soundly saved. Okay? Absolute proof refuting any of these heretical notions. Right? So what are the applications? I think there's many, but I'm going to just do two. First, we see in this account a full documentation of conversion. Full documentation. It's absolute proof again. Salvation is by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So don't let anyone add to this simple gospel because when you add to it, you destroy it. And it can't save you. You add to it. And don't think you brought anything to the table. Uh, you brought as much to the table as did the thief. Nothing. All right, second, the second application. The two thieves are obviously they're real people. This is a historical account of two real individuals. But they're also very much representative, aren't they? Okay. So which are you? I guess that's the question. Are you here engaged in sham worship, making a mockery of Christ, and you never put your faith in Christ? It's a sham, then. You're mocking him, subject to judgment and wrath to come. You ought to fear God. If you put your faith in Christ, you rest totally on Him for salvation because you you did fear God because of the penalty for your sins. Then this is a time of worship. 
of understanding the true gospel. Right? Let's pray. Oh, you are grateful for the gospel. Grateful for this account of the, this, this thief. Uh, look forward to meeting him and, and understanding what that day was like for him. Grateful for the account of grace. Grateful, Lord, that it doesn't depend on us because uh, it wouldn't stand. We're grateful, Lord, for all that you, the Son went through that day. And sorry for our sin. Sorry for our sin that put him there, but so grateful, Lord, that you did that for us. And thank you again, Jesus. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.